Good morning. A, a few quick announcements before we begin studying the parasha. First of all, we want to dedicate our learning this morning, Rafua Shlema, for Rav Kelmer from West Hempstead, who was uh, hit by a car yesterday. But Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, he is okay, but in need of a Rafua Shlema. Yehuda ben Rifka Leah should have a complete and speedy Rafua Shlema among all Chole Yisrael. Uh, quick announcements. We have uh, the next three nights are three fantastic topics for classes. The teacher's not bad either. Tonight, the great rivalries program continues with the rivalry between the Gra and Hasidim. The Vilna Gon who put Hasidim in Cherem uh, several hundred years ago, and a rivalry that lasted until recently, arguably even today. What's the nature of the rivalry? What did they argue about? What was the context in which this rivalry occurred? Is it resolved? How can it be resolved? It's at 7.30 tonight. It's a free class. It's a fantastic PowerPoint, really amazing topic. Tomorrow night, I'm starting a, a new class, a new series called The Best Version of Yourself, drawing from books like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Essentialism, Good to Great, mixed with Torah's Timeless Teachings. It's at 8 p.m. tomorrow night, also in the social hall. And lastly, on Thursday night, we're beginning a new series called Jewish Music Unplugged, we're going to listen to three Jewish music songs that you're all familiar with, that you sing, that you know the words to, but you have no idea what those words mean, where they come from, what they're all about. So we'll study those words so that when we listen to and sing those songs, they'll have a lot more meaning. And lastly, this coming Shabbos is our annual weekend of Chizuk for the Beis Medrash, Dr. Yitzchak Belazan, Beis Medrash of BRS. We're hosting world-renowned speaker of Ephraim Waxman, Incredibly passionate, fiery speaker. I encourage you to go online and watch his talk at the Sea of Mashas. You'll, uh, you'll definitely be moved. He'll be uh, speaking numerous times over Shabbos, culminating in Malavamalka for men on Motzei Shabbos at 8.30 p.m. Of course, you're encouraged and invited to uh, participate and to participate financially in supporting our base measures. And lastly, as we begin Parshas Vayishlach together, Baruch Hashem, Bokerton Synagogue is uh, grateful to be able to host this wonderful shir and to welcome all of you to it. Um, there's an opportunity to sponsor the Parsha class each week. Enable us to continue to provide for the greater community what we do. And we'd prefer if non-members would sponsor the Parsha class on rotation as an expression of Akar Satov, of gratitude, and so on. So it's $100 each week. You could do it in memory. You could do it in honor. I'll announce it. It'll be in the weekly. It'll be online on Yu Torah for the several hundred people who listen there. And it'll truly be a merit in the memory or the honor of whoever you choose to dedicate. If you'd like to dedicate, you can be in touch with our shul office or with Linda. Linda, raise your hand, wave to everybody. Or you could let me know. Parshas Vayishlach, page 170 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. And our parsha picks up again, not coincidentally, where last week's leaves off. Yaakov and Lovin part ways, the end of last week's parsha. Yaakov takes his family and heads out. In the beginning of our parsha, Yaakov anticipates the awaited reunion with his brother Esav. It's a reunion which is not a source of excitement, of joyous anticipation. For Yaakov, it's a source of great anxiety, of fear, and of worry. Yaakov sends emissaries, ambassadors, and he tells them, here's what I want you to tell him, in Lavan Garti, I was living with Lavan, you should know I have resolve and tenacity, despite my living with Lavan, in Lavan Garti, Shamarti, I was unwavering, I was unflinching in my observance, and my perseverance, and so on. And we know that Yaakov famously employs this three-pronged tactic, this three-pronged approach when he goes to see Esav. He practices diplomacy. He sends gifts to Esav. He prays to the Almighty. And lastly, he prepares for war. And in fact, Hazal tell us that this three-pronged approach, this attitude, this strategy was not only for Yaakov in his particular circumstance, but Yaakov, my Lebanon, this was the template, this was the blueprint for eternity. When the Jewish people would face conflict, when we would face enemies, these are the three-pronged approach. Diplomacy, send gifts, sit down, and so, maybe this is what the Exxon CEO said that won him the job. He had this, uh, he read the Parsha, and he said, diplomacy and prayer, don't forget the merit, the Almighty, 
and be prepared for war. How does Yaakov prepare for war? He splits his camp into a number of camps. So Rabbi Salavitchik writes, Rabbi Salavitchik in the, in the Rav Chumash says, the Ramban calls the book of Bereshis Sefer Hasimanim, the book of signs, because Bereshis is a blueprint for the future of Bnei Yisrael. This parasha foretells our destiny and reveals the mystery of Jewish existence. The Medrash says that whenever Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi would visit the Roman governor on behalf of the Jewish people, he would first study this parsha to infer how to best conduct the negotiations. That the Jewish people, going back to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, when he was worried about the Roman governor, until today, when we have to confront enemies, we read this parsha and we are reminded of Yaakov's resolve, of Yaakov's strength, but also of Yaakov's three-pronged strategy, which we employ. There's a couple questions about Yaakov's three-pronged strategy. Again, gifts, doron, and prayer, and war. Number one, why is Yaakov praying? Why is he davening? After all, the Rebona Shalom himself, God Almighty promised Yaakov that he was going to take care of him. It says... And the Gemara in Brochus, Davdalad asked this question. I am with you and I will guard you everywhere you go. God promised Yaakov, no fear, no worry. I got your back. I'm with you the whole way. And then our parsha begins. That Yaakov was very fearful. Yaakov was very anxious. He was very worried. And as a result, and why was he worried? Shema yigrom hachet. Because maybe his inadequacy, maybe his deficiency, maybe his mistakes would lose him the merit of God's protection and he was therefore vulnerable. And so the Gemara Baruchos wonders, it's a contradiction. God says, I've got your back. You've got nothing to worry about. And now the rubber meets the road. Now you've got a problem, a reunion with Esav. And now you're worried? And now you're worried? What happened to God's promise? This is Yaakov Avinu we're talking about. This is Yaakov, our, the Bechir HaAvos, the choicest among all the patriarchs, the pinnacle of our, of our great leaders. And he lacks emuna. He lacks the faith and the fortitude to believe with confidence that God's promise will come true. What do you mean, Vayira Yaakov? What happened to the promise? When the Salonim Rebbe in the Siva Shalom deals with this question, he compounds it by pointing out that the Pasuk says, B'tach Pashem va'asei tov. Believe in God and do good. And the Ramban writes on that Pasuk, B'tach Pashem, have faith, trust God, and be a good boy, be a good girl. Says the Ramban, notice it doesn't say, be a good boy or a good girl, and then you're in a position to be able to rely on and trust in Hashem. Says the Ramban, no, and the Chazanish talks about this in the Sefer, Emunah Bitachon. First it says, Betach Bashem. Whatever your merits or demerits, whatever your righteousness or lack of righteousness, whatever you've done right, whatever you've done wrong, whatever position you are in life, Betach Bashem. You know, when that child is in the dire circumstance, when the child is in a moment of crisis, the parent doesn't say, well, before I step in here and help you, let's see, did you get me a birthday card, Father's Day? What'd you do? Did you clear off the dishes last week when I asked you to? Let's evaluate your merits and demerits before I step in and bail you out of your cry. No! A parent is a loving parent. A parent loves a child unconditionally. And the parent tries to communicate a message to the child, do what's right, I have expectations, I'll be disappointed if you don't meet them, but I'm always your parent. I'm always here to help you and support you and I love you. So God says, Betach Bashem. Pasuk says, trust in Hashem. Wherever you are, whether you feel close to Him, whether you feel far away from Him, whatever stage, whatever, whatever you are in life right now in your relationship, know you can trust Him. He's your Father. He's not going to bail on you. And then, Asay Tov, it's also correct to do the right thing, the good thing. Which compounds the question. What do you mean, Shema Yigro Machet? What does it mean, Yaakov lacked Amuna? Maybe my inadequacy will make me vulnerable and exposed to Esav, Vayira, Yaakov's worry. I thought fear is a bad thing. 
In fact, the Chazanish writes in Amunah Bitachon, and ladies are all invited Wednesday mornings, 8.45 a.m. at my home. We have a weekly Amunah Shir for women with a cup of coffee. <laughs> Throw in the sweetener and the cream. So, the, and we've studied this essay of the Chazanish in the past. The Chazanish writes, you're not, and maybe I shouldn't tell this to half of the population in the room right now, but you're not allowed to worry. You're not supposed to worry. Fear, writes the Chazanish, worry and anxiety are in fact expressions of heresy, of kfirah. Because real amunah and bitachon means I know that once I've done everything I can do, I've shown my initiative, I've taken my steps, I've done everything within my power, I now sit back and the rest is up to the Almighty. Enjoy the ride. Let go and let God. And the moment that you fear and you worry, what will be, and I don't know, and I'm so anxious, and I don't know, and what's going to happen, and how can I trust, and what's going to be, then you're showing you don't really believe that all that God does is for the best. That there's meaning and purpose and order to the universe. The moment you introduce worry to the equation, you knock God out of the equation. So the Chazanish says, there's a prohibition to worry. You can worry about whether you will do what you need to do. That's a healthy worry. Whether you'll take the steps you need to take. Whether you will take the initiative you need to take. But beyond that, to worry about God's job, you start worrying about God. What will be beyond your control? That's a form of kfirah. So what's going on here? Yaakov is vayira ma'od, He's worried. And he takes these steps. What do you mean? That's, by the way, the Chazanish is writing that for you and me. We have not, I don't know about you, I have not merited God to come to me and say, Goldberg, gotcha back, have no worries, all good, gotcha covered, never fear. Yaakov has the additional level of having heard that directly from the Rebona Shalom. So what does it mean that he's afraid? And the Salonim Rebbe develops in an essay, which we won't go into at length, but I just draw your attention to it, the difference between the world of Gashmias and Ruchnias. God's promise and the Chazanisha's prohibition of worry all applies to the physical material realm, to your operation, your existence within the physical world. God says, I got your back. He's got your back. And when you've done everything you can, and the rest is up to Hashem in terms of your health and your parnasa and so on, then it is what it is. It's up to God. But when it comes to our ruchnius, says the Slana Marebbe, when it comes to our spirituality, that's when we should not worry, but that's when we should never, ever be complacent. Never, ever settle in. Never, ever say, it's good, good to go, no worries, I am what I am. That's Shema Yigrom When your relationship with Hashem, in your sense of spirituality, in the world of Ruchnias, that's where inadequacy, that's where deficiency can in fact kick in and leave you. So, always trust in Hashem, no matter what you're at in life. That's true for the world of Gashmias, in the physical material world. But in the world of Ruchnias, then, first you have to be worthy and earn the success in the world of Ruchnias, and only then can you rely on Hashem. But the question begs itself then. If God Himself told Yaakov, I got your back, I got you covered, I understand the military preparation, that's part of human initiative. I understand the gift of diplomacy, that's part of human initiative. Why is Yaakov davening to Hashem if Hashem preempted him and gave the answer? Hashem has already told Yaakov, got your back, you're all good, no worries. Yaakov says, that's nice, but God, if you'll excuse me, I got to go to shul and daven. You understand the question? God says, I've got your back, no worries, go meet Esav, you're good to go. And Yaakov says, God, if you could just hold that thought, I got to go to this place called shul and do this thing called davening and ask, who? God to have my back. Why is Yaakov davening? Why is Yaakov davening? So I once saw an answer, I don't remember where I saw this, that this is further evidence that davening is not for God. That davening is for ourselves. And this too is a much longer topic. The Alshech, many others, uh, Rav Yitzchak Albo, have pointed out, Sefer Ikarim, that 
the word we use for davening is lehitpalel, which is the hitpael. It's the reflexive form. I'm not trying to change God's mind. The whole exercise of prayer is an exercise to change whom? To change myself. And by being a new me, I'm worthy of a new verdict. So the me of yesterday, the me before Mincha today, was worthy of whatever challenge came my way. But through the experience and exercise of tefillah, I reflexively change myself. So I say, hey God, you know the verdict that you issued on the old me? It's a new me. Reevaluate, update, refresh the screen. It's a new me. Reevaluate, I'm worthy and I want a new judgment. So tefillah is an exercise, not for Hashem, but it's an exercise in humility. It's an exercise in self-transformation. And so Yaakov engages in tefillah, despite the fact that his prayer was answered already, he engages in tefillah, because tefillah is never about changing God's mind. Tefillah is always about changing ourselves. Okay, we're already in two words into the parsha and way behind. So let's keep going. Yaakov prepares these things. Good. But before he actually encounters Esau, he has a more famous encounter. The most famous encounter probably of Yaakov. Where Yaakov leaves these pachim ketanim. Chazal see here connection to the holiday of Hanukkah, by the way. A hint, a remez to Hanukkah in the Torah. That he, uh, Yaakov leaves these small jugs, these pachim ketanim behind. And he walks away from the encampment of his wives and children and his entourage, and he goes back to retrieve, which Chazal also learned, by the way, that the righteous, Hashem al-Mamona, the righteous, don't waste even a penny. You know, people will say in a derogatory way, you know, that Jews will bend down and pick up the penny in the street, or Jews are so frugal, or Jews are such penny count. But you know what? Chazal didn't see that as derogatory or an insult. They saw it as a compliment. If money is a life source, if money has the ability to sustain and to impact and to influence the world, if money reflects the effort we put into it, then every penny matters. One should never be so arrogant. One should never be so self-confident that they have what they need and that they're so well taken care of and they're so wealthy that they can stand to disregard even a penny. So Chazal see from here that tzaddikim, that the righteous are chasanam amonam. They care about, they're concerned about their money, not in a materialistic fashion, but in a responsible, humble fashion to see every, every penny as being something which is valuable. So Yaakov goes back to retrieve these pachim kitanim, and who does he meet? None other than the Saros Shal Esav. He meets this somewhat anonymous angel, um, somehow representing Esav, and he wrestles with him the entire night long. And what night is it that he's wrestling with him? Anyone know what night it is on the calendar? I say it every year and I worry about repeating myself, but I see I'm good to go. <laughs> what night of the... Nope. This wrestling match, this wrestling match, Wrestlemania, I guess one, was on Kol Nidre night. Chazal tell us, Yaakov wrestled with the angel Kol Nidre night. And also for another time, and I've done it another time, namely the Drusha Kol Nidre night. It's very instructive what we're trying to do on Kol Nidre night and what Yom Kippur is all about and what we're imitating about Yaakov's wrestling match with Esav or the angel of Esav. But for our purposes, Yaakov wrestles with him. He's injured and he walks away limping with the Gid HaNasha. We've discussed this at length in the past. You could listen online. We've asked the question previously. We don't eat the sciatic nerve, the Gid HaNasha, until today. It's a biblical law to commemorate the consequence of this wrestling match, which the Chizkuni and others point out is a bizarre commemoration. If in fact what we're celebrating is Yaakov's triumph, his defeat of his alter ego, the enemy, then, then how do you memorialize a win by refraining from something? Right? Can you imagine you tell, I don't know the name of any wrestlers, or Bach. You tell Muhammad Ali, you won this enormous match. So, you know what? I want to reward you. For now on, you're a vegetarian. No steak. So that's a reward? That's, and for some of us, that's like an enormous punishment. So, Yaakov, you defeated, you persevered through the night. And I want your children to never forget it. So I'll tell you what. 
no eating the sciatic nerve, and we struggle to traver the meat, so we've eliminated a whole portion of meat that you can't... What kind of positive... And we've described in the past, and, and I'll just reiterate it now in another form. Hold that question, I'll ask you in another form. The Gemara of the Makos tells us, you know, we have 365... I'm sorry, we have 613 mitzvahs. We have a tradition of taryag. And it's broken down into ramach, mitzvahs say. We have 248 positive commandments and Shisa 365 negative commandments. And the Gemara of the Anamakos leaves it at like that, somewhat ambiguous, 613 broken into 248 and 365. But the Zohar HaKadosh, I'm now old enough to study it, so the Zohar HaKadosh says that the 365 negative prohibitions correspond very neatly with, what is 365? The days of the year. The calendar. Each day on the calendar corresponds with another lav. And the Zohar doesn't fill in then which lav, which negative prohibition corresponds with which day on the calendar with the exception of one. It tells us there is a day on the calendar that corresponds with the prohibition of Giranasha. And you think it'd be Yom Kippur based on what I just told you, but it's not. The day on the calendar that corresponds with the prohibition of eating Giranasha is... Who said Tishabov? Well done. Tishabov is Tishabov. Why Tishabov? What do Tishabov and Giranasha have to do with anything? Rav Asher Weiss, the Minchas Asher, asked this question. He gives his own answer based on the Sefer Achinach. It's worth looking at his answer, but I want to tell you my answer. My answer is very simple. Why was Yaakov vulnerable to attack? Why was he even in a position to be attacked? And to be hurt, to be damaged. Vayivaser Yaakov. We should do this as part of the Jewish music unplugged. It's one of those songs, you know, Kalbach, Vayivaser Yaakov, Levado, Vayavik Ishimo. It's this week's Pasha. Okay. Anyway, Vayivaser Yaakov, Levado. What left Yaakov in a position vulnerable to being attacked? The fact that he was what? Levado. He was all alone. Nobody accompanied him. Nobody said, Dad, Zayda, Saba, whatever they call Yaakov, don't walk alone. Let me go get those small jugs or let me at least accompany you. A person shouldn't be alone. Don't walk at night. Let me go with you. Yaakov is all alone. And the lack of camaraderie, the lack of companionship, the lack of caring is what left him vulnerable to the attack of the Gidanasha. And is that not the essence of Tishabov? The divisiveness, the loneliness, the lack of unity and camaraderie? Gidanasha, explained many of the Mephorshim, is not about celebrating that Yaakov won. The prohibition of Gidanasha is quite the opposite. It's about remembering why although he won, he limped away. We the Jewish people have won. We're still here. Systematic attempts to exterminate and to annihilate and to exile and to get rid of us from the world. And we won. But can anyone say that we're not limping? If you look at the statistics of Jewish history, if you look at the memorial plaques, if you look at the cemeteries around the world and those who weren't even zocha to be buried in a cemetery, to a certain extent, are we not limping? And so... The Zohar is telling us the prohibition of Gidanasha corresponds with Tishabov. Tishabov reflects our survival, our triumph, but we continue to limp. We carry an injury of our unworthiness, the injury of the divisiveness and the loneliness that we once had. Maybe that's the connection, and that's really what Gidanasha represents. Okay, let's keep going. I give vault. Yaakov and Esav then meet. It's a very duplicitous event. Esav presents himself one way. Yaakov anticipates this, by the way. He asks God, Save me from my brother, from Esav. And the commentaries wonder why the redundancy. Okay, obviously, you have one twin brother. It's your brother Esav. Just say, Or say, And why say the word twice? The commentaries all talk about it. Besalevi says explicitly that what Yaakov was worried about is, I don't know which Esav I'm going to meet. 
Sometimes I meet Esav, he's my hostile enemy, transparent, clear, I know what I got. Sometimes I meet Esav, and he's trying to shake my hand on the front lawn of the White House and sign an agreement and present himself to be Achi, that he's ready for peace and he's my brother. So I don't know which Arafat, I mean, which Esav, <laughs> which Abbas, I mean, which Esav, I don't know which one I'm going to see. So Yaakov Davin's Miyad Achi, Miyad Esav. Please, Hashem, protect me, whether he presents himself as Achi or he presents himself as Esav. So they meet Esav, they have this embrace. Esav, somewhat disingenuously, invites Yaakov, oh, we're brothers, let's go together arm in arm. And then the, you know, the, the curtain can close and the music will play and we'll be arm in arm walking off the stage. And Yaakov says, thanks, but no thanks. I've got this entourage, I've got a bunch of wives and a bunch of children and a bunch of stuff and we take a long time, so go ahead, go ahead without us. And then Yaakov arrives in Shechem. And Yaakov arrives in Shechem and he thinks, Torah describes him on page 180, Yaakov arrives, the Torah describes Yaakov's arrival as being Shalem. What does it mean, Shalem? Says Rashi, Shalem begufo, shenetzrape mitzlaoso, Shalem bimamono, shelochaser klum, yikoloso doron. Says Yaakov, after his difficult life, he's grown up with his abusive brother. He had to trick his own father. He had to be on the run. He had to live with a lovan. He had to deal with competing sisters as wives and challenges of one of them having infertility. Yaakov has struggled and struggled and struggled. Now he wrestles with an angel. He's limping. And finally he says... I can move to South Florida, Shalem. I'm retired. I'm done. I'm done. I'm Shalem. Says Rashi, Shalem Begufo. Yes, I have the limp, but I can still walk. I'm still mobile. I'm Shalem Begufo. At least I have my health. Shalem Bimamono. He was worried that Asaph could have robbed him blind. The diplomacy, the gifts he had to give could have cost him an enormous amount. But he's Shalem Bimamono. He's got all of his money intact. And Shalim B'Toroso, that though he lived in Lavan's home, where many lesser people would have diluted their faith, diluted their observance, lost their way, gone off the derech, he's Shalim B'Toroso. And the Torah tells us, it's a phenomenal literary preface to the story we're about to read. Yaakov, and we've had this a few times, you know, because Yaakov, Leshev B'Shalva. Like Yaakov spends his whole life with, I just want some peace and quiet. Can I just have some serenity? Can I just breathe? Why is it always a crisis, a fire to put out, a struggle to endure? I just want some breathing room. So as a preface to the story we're about to read, the Torah says, Yaakov comes shalem. Finally, he's got his health, he's got his money, he's got his Torah, he's got his children. Finally, he could retire at peace. Vatetzai dina basleya. Segue right into his daughter Dina heads out. And the Chazal tell us, Rashi quotes, it is not flattering when it describes Dina that's Vatetse Dina. Says Rashi, Vatetse Dina, whatever it is. Basleya, Velo Bas Yaakov. First, the Chumash identifies Dina as the daughter of Leah, but not as the daughter of Yaakov. Why? The Torah had described Leah as not, I, I, God forbid, I would not say about one of our Imahos, immodest, I'm not saying immodest, but that she was not necessarily the most modest. We have a tradition that femininity includes a certain modesty, which we're not going into now. Leah kind of pierced that sense of modesty. She went out. She liked to go out. She went out. She went out. And Dina took after her mother Leah. She liked to go out. So Sarah was always found in the tent, we're told. Leah liked to go out. And Dina liked to go out. And Chazal said, the Torah is setting up the story to say that certainly Dina is the victim. 
She deserves zero of the blame. But understand, she went out. And she went out mixed in the wrong places and became exposed, allowed herself, became in a position to be victimized. And she's 100% the victim. It's not to put blame on the victim, but it's to say we have to be careful where we go and how we can avoid being in situations in which we can be victimized. I left out the whole part, by the way, about Yaakov changing his name to Yisrael. If you were here this past Shabbos, we had maybe the greatest speaker we've ever had, Avi Sacher, Sacher, who is the uh, head of the team that invented Iron Dome. He's a rocket scientist at Raphael. He uh, grew up in America. He's a proud graduate of Kerem Biavna, seven years at Technion, and uh, incredible, incredible, incredible speaker. And he spoke about the dual persona of Yaakov that the others whose names were changed were changed permanently to the degree to which we're prohibited to use their old name. Avram, Avraham, Sarai, Sarah. But Yaakov becomes Yisrael, and then we still see the name Yaakov being used, and we are entitled to still use the name Yaakov. And he described that this individual, Yaakov, who by the way is, we are B'nai Yisrael, but not B'nai Avram, B'nai Yitzchak, so he is the paradigm, he is the paradigmatic father of our people. He has this dual personality. Sometimes Yaakov, sometimes Yisrael. When is he which, by the way? When is he which? So Rabbi Soloveitchik also writes this. Maybe that's where he got it from. Rabbi Soloveitchik also writes, Yaakov, Akev, comes from the idea that Yaakov was holding the heel of Esau. And it comes to Akev is not something praiseworthy. If you listen to those mitzvahs that you step on with your foot, with your heel, the Akev, the Akev is the, the heel is the lowest point. It describes the Yaakov who's just holding on, who's just trying to survive, who's just trying to get by, who's on a low. What's Yisrael? Where did that name come from? You're not called Yaakov, but rather you're now called Yisrael. Why? Kisarita emelokim, where's the Pasuk? Something like that. Because you are a prince. Because you are a nobility. Because you have strength. You wrestled and you persevered. Yisrael reflects the Jewish people in our glory, in our strength, as role models, in a position to tell the world and teach the world and demand of the world and speak up for ourselves. I'm not going to relay his entire talk, but it was so counterintuitive. Here, the head of the team, the inventor of Iron Dome, that we're gushing with pride. You know, the whole world said it can't be done to invent a system that you could meet a, a makeshift rocket midair and blow it up and anticipate its trajectory and not injure anyone. Everyone said, can't be done, can't be done, can't be done, can't be done. Israel said, no problem, here it is. And we're so proud. And he got up here and he said, Iron Dome. Iron Dome is an invention of Yaakov. Iron, invention is an inve- Iron Dome is an invention of the Gullish Jew, of the exiled Jew, who's holding on to the heel, who's apologizing for existence, who's in a defensive mode, who has to build a dome over their own civilians to break up a rocket. It's not the invention of a Yisrael. A Yisrael takes it to the enemy side. A Yisrael eliminates the threat rather than tolerate the barrage and say, oh, look at us, we're brilliant, we invented a... A protective umbrella. And he distinguished the Yaakov and the Yisrael and what I, you'd think he'd take such pride, so counterintuitively he said, don't get such a geschmack out of the Iron Dome. Iron Dome is a continuation of the mentality of a Yaakov. But we're now a Yisrael. After 2,000 years of being a Yaakov with Yisrael in an induced coma, he said, Yisrael has awoken and Yisrael is waking up and Yisrael needs to stand for a people. And the Rav writes this as well in the Chumash. Avram name changed to Avram, was irreversible, and so on. Nachmanis explains the two names reflect two destinies, two roles played by the covenantal community. On one hand, our patriarch Yaakov was often dependent on others. He spent 20 years working for Lavan. He desperately tried to assuage Esau. Finally, he was ultimately forced against his will to come to Egypt. The name Yaakov signifies dependence, being pulled along. Afterwards, his brother emerged, his hand was grasping Esav's seal, he named him Yaakov. Yisrael, on the other hand, represents the patriarch no longer subservient, who defeated a mysterious enemy during a long, lonely night. 
This enemy himself described Yaakov as one commanding power with an angel of God. Yisrael is the free, powerful Jew. Yaakov is the Jew dependent on others. The Rav spoke about that in Boston in 1975. And that was the message this past Shabbos. The Yaakov Jew and the Yisrael Jew and the 2,000 years of our people and the awakening of the Yisrael from his induced coma. A very powerful image. Let's finish the parsha and go back to our psukim. We have the whole episode here with Dina and Shechem, which is what we're going to go into in a moment. Yaakov then heads to Beit El. We have the death of Dvora Menekes Rivka. Shem gives this bracha to Yaakov and the birth of Binyamin and Rachel dies. She's buried on the side of the road, Kever Rachel. We know one place she's not buried is what we now visit as Kever Rachel. It's likely not where she is, historically, archaeologically. But she's buried on the road on the way to Beit Lechem. And why is she buried there? As opposed to permanently resting with the rest of the Avos and Imahos. What role does she play for us as Yaakov heads back from 2,000 years to be Yisrael? She cried when Yisrael was dragged out to the Gullus to be Yaakov. And she's there to experience the joy of our coming back to once again be Yisrael. Yaakov... Um, V'yub b'nei Yaakov Shneimasar, Torah then delineates the 12 sons. We have the chronicles of Esav. Esav separates from Yaakov. And chronology, lineage, the end of the parsha. Let's go back to our story. Dina Basleya. So Dina was a Yatsanis. She liked to go out. Some people like to stay home. Some people like to go out. You just have to be careful where you go out to. Dina liked to go out. And what happened as a consequence of going out? Who sees her? Shechem ben Chamor Achivin is Haaretz. Shechem. Shechem has become known as a city and a people, but at the time was a person. Shechem is the son of Chamor, who's the prince of the region. He's the aristocracy of the region. What happens? He's attracted to Dina. And he, um, without her consent, comes upon her. He becomes infatuated. He becomes obsessed. He wants not only a carnal relationship with Dina, he wants to have a shared destiny. On page 180, if you're looking. And he loves the young lady. And he tries to... He tries to... Uh, he tries to court her. Shechem says to his father, Chamor, you're the prime minister, you're the president, you're the governor. Look, I found this girl. You, know, you always wonder when I'm going to get married. I found the girl. This Dina, I'm obsessed. I can't get her out of my mind. She's all that I think about. Take her for me as a wife. Yaakov now hears that his daughter has been defiled. She's been raped. And meanwhile, his sons are out shepherding. Yaakov is infuriated. He's livid. But he stays quiet till his sons come home. Meaning he does nothing. No reaction. By the way, it's the Yaakov who has no reaction. It doesn't say Yisrael had no reaction. The mentality of a Yaakov. Now you, could, now you have the Rav's insight with Ari... You could plug it in to every time you see the words Yaakov and Yisrael in the Chumash and in our davening and try to plug it in. What happens? B'nei Yaakov bo... I'm sorry. V'yetzei chamor avishchem al Yaakov l'daberito. So chamor says, he brings a bottle of uh, scotch and some l'chaim glasses and he comes up to Yaakov and he says, No, let's conclude the shidduch. My son Shechem is in love with your daughter Dina. No, it's a match made in heaven. Meanwhile, the boys are coming in from the field where they're shepherding. And boy, are they upset. This is their sister's dignity. This is their father, their mother's dignity. They committed an outrage. Such a thing is intolerable. It's unacceptable. It cannot be done. So Chamor comes and he's 
somewhat naive, and he says, my son Shechem wants a shirach, no, let's make it happen. And what happens now? I'm skipping a little bit because I want to get to our, go to Pasuk Yagimel. So B'nai Yaakov have a great answer. B'nai Yaakov have a great answer. Trickery. They've got a plan in mind. They've got a very tricky plan in mind. But they understand, you know, they are well outnumbered. B'nai Yaakov are a tiny few. Shechem is the whole city. They've got an army. How are you going to conquer this army? You cannot be silent. You cannot be indifferent to this outrage which has occurred. But how are you going to avenge? How are you going to prevent it? To make sure to disincentivize anyone from ever doing anything like it again. So B'nai Yaakov come up with what we could only in retrospect be proud of somewhat. This great plan. They turn to the children, they turn to Shechem and Chamor and they say, look, here's the problem. It's a wonderful shidduch. J-date, Shechem date, Chamor date, whatever the website was. It's a great shidduch. But here's the problem. You don't have a bris. How can, it's, it's, you know, I can't take you home to my mother. You don't have a bris mila. You got to convert. You got to have a bris. And then we can finalize the shidduch. Shechem is so in love, so infatuated, so obsessed. He convinces his father, who demands it of the whole city. You know what? Mass conversion. Everyone bris mila. Because we are going to unite and integrate with the Bnei Yaakov. Meanwhile, all along, their plan was never, ever, of course, to welcome them or integrate them. Once they have the bris, they're vulnerable. They're recovering from surgery. A surgery that leaves you vulnerable and weak. And the Bnei Yaakov jump on it, take advantage, attack. On the next page, when they are in great pain, there's no delauded, there is no Percocet, there is no... Oxycontin. All there is is pain. Shimon and Levi. It's not all the sons. It's only two. Shimon and Levi take matters literally into their own hand. They take their sword. And they kill every male in the city. And then they leave the best for last. They kill Chamor and Shechem. They rescue their sister Dina and they head out. And when they get home, do they get a Grace Yashikayach? When they get home, do they get praise, heaped with praise and love and admiration of their dad? Wow, so proud of you. Kindalach, come here. No. Are you crazy? You have made me hated. You've lowered, you've degraded me, you've made me vulnerable. Vanim is same as par. We are few in number, we're next to nothing. What are you out of your mind? You're out of your mind? Who is saying this to Shimon and Levi? Not Israel. Not the assertive, not the entitled, empowered. Authority of a Yisrael, it's Yaakov. Worried, anxious, fearful, apologetic, defensive. What are you, crazy? What are you, crazy? They're going to come get us. You can't go into Gaza and hunt the terrorists and the collateral damage and the casualties. What are you, crazy? The world is going to come after us and criticize us and boycott us. What are you, crazy? But who has the last word? Shimon and Levi. In this episode, they have the last word and they say, we're not going to stand by. You might feel like Yaakov right now, but the Israel in you knows that we cannot tolerate being treated this way. Our sister being raped, it's simply intolerable. And in Parshas Vayechi, the whole episode is revisited. Because when Yaakov gives the bracha to, Levi, to Shimon and Levi, he references again what they had done and the vulnerable spot he feels that he, put them, that he put them in. So what I want to study with you in our remaining time is not our usual going through the psukim and the different mafarshim, but I want to study a bigger question. And the bigger question is, how in the world did Shimon and Levi do this? By the way, I'll just give a little shameless plug for tonight. The question we're going to talk about is collective punishment. 
What is the Torah's perspective on collective punishment? You're an average citizen living in Hamor. You're living in this village, in this town, in this metropolis. And you keep to yourself, you mind your business, you do your thing. It happens to be that the mayor's son rapes a girl. And the girl's two brothers then kill everyone in the city? Is that just? Is that moral? Is that ethical? Is that what we as Jewish people believe? Collective punishment? Is that a means or a mechanism or a strategy we employ? Do we believe in collective punishment? This is a little bit of a stretch, but I've got to give you a little forspice for tonight. The Gra and Hasidim. The Gra's opposition was to the particular behavior and conduct of some Hasidim. So to excommunicate them all is a collective punishment. And by the way, you know what Hasidim did? The Gra issued numerous bans. We're going to read them tonight, the excommunications. We're going to see it's unbelievable how it escalated this battle. A particular person actually cursed out the Gra in Vilna. So they had this mechanism. They locked his head into and they gave him lashes and they made him come before the Aron Kodesh and apologize and beg forgiveness of the Gra. It's an unbelievable episode in Jewish history. Not necessarily so flattering. But when the Hasidim realized that the Gra's excommunication was gaining traction, this was before the internet and mass media, someone had a great chap. One of the Hasidim said, you know what, why don't we just spread a rumor that the Gra took back the excommunication and now he believes in Hasidus. And they started to spread that rumor. And then another Hasid had a great idea. And he posed as an imposter. And he went, he went shtetl to shtetl, town to town, posing as the son of the Vilna Gom. And then they would ask him questions and he would say, oh absolutely, my father rescinded it and he loves Hasidim now and he believes in it and he's become, some of his best friends are Hasidim. That was the strategy. When they couldn't combat him explicitly, they went undercover and they tried to spread this rumor and one Hasid was an imposter. He went around Eastern Europe, he went around the Ukraine and he posed as the son of the Gra. It's an unbelievable episode in Jewish history. You got to hear the punchline of it at 7.30 tonight. So the question of... <laughs> the question of collective punishment. Or you'll be able to listen to it online afterwards on YU Torah. The Ramban deals with this. Source number one. <clears throat> Source number one. Ramban writes, Why is Yaakov incredulous towards his sons? Here in our parsha and in Vayichi, he has a veiled criticism. When he's giving the brachas to his sons on his deathbed, he criticizes Shimon and Levi for being impetuous. He continues to criticize. So says Ramban, you know why he was angry? Collective punishment. Shimon and Levi, it was righteous to kill Shechem. He raped your sister, my daughter. But how could you kill everyone? How could you kill everybody? Next paragraph. The question of collective punishment is not a 21st century politically correct question. The Ramban in the 13th century Spain, the Rambam in the 12th century Egypt, Spain, Egypt, Israel, they're asking the same question. How could it be? What's the morality of collective punishment? And the Ramban now quotes the Rambam. The Rambam's explanation is that you know there are seven Noahide laws. And one of the seven Noahide laws is Dinim. There must be a justice system. One of the seven laws that all B'nai Noah, that humanity is bound by from a Torah perspective is to set up a judicial system and the goal, the purpose of the judicial system is to create accountability for the other six of the mitzvahs b'nei Noach. Uben Noach shavar alachas mehu nerag b'sayef. A ben Noach who violates any of their seven laws is punishable by death. Ro echad shavar alachas mehem lodanu lahargo harizah roig yaharig b'sayef. Moreover, the halacha is that if someone tolerates a Noahide peer violated one of the seven laws 
and doesn't hold them accountable, they themselves become accountable. So therefore, says the Rambam, Shechem rapes. Shechem kidnaps. And the whole city knows it, sees it. And what do they do? Absolutely nothing. So they're violating one of the Sheva B'nai Mitzvos B'nai Noach by not setting up a judicial system, by not carrying out justice, by not holding Shechem accountable, and says the Rambam, their failure to act, their indifference makes them accountable, and that's why it was not an unjust collective punishment. In fact, they all deserve exactly what they got. That's the Rambam. The Rambam then goes on and says, Says the Rambam, not surprisingly, I don't agree with the Rambam. I think he's wrong. If that were correct, Yaakov should have called his boys and said, Come on, boys, let's go get him. Why is Yaakov not only passive himself, but critical after the fact? So therefore, says the Ramban, And why does the Ramban look for reasons to hold them accountable? The truth is, they, B'nai Yaakov, were not entitled to hold the people of Shechem accountable for their failure to act. So the Ramban quotes the Rambam, rejects him, disagrees. So we're left still with the question, collective punishment. What did they do wrong? Where is the morality and the ethics in killing the entire city because one person performed an act of rape and kidnapped? The Gurari the Maharal of Prague, and this is a commentary on Rashi, on Chumash, source number two, the Maharal is bothered by this question. And he writes the following. I'm reading the underline. Shechem, we can identify and point to what he did wrong. Liable for death, capital crime. But what did the rest of the city do wrong? Venera, says the Maharal. De it's not a question at all. This maharal is a critical, fundamental, foundational maharal. The maharal is essentially answering a different question he doesn't ask. Where is the justice, where is the morality of being at war? Your army, whether in a defensive war or an offensive war, is facing an enemy, aims the gun, the cannon, aims the artillery, aims the airplane, and pulls the trigger. What happened to the prohibition to murder? Why is that soldier on the other end of the gun, why is the member of the enemy army liable for death? Show me, where does it say in the Torah? They violated something that is deserving of a capital punishment. By what right does a Jewish army ever have to shoot at the enemy? Now if the enemy is shooting at you, it's self-defense. But let's say the soldier at that time is reloading his gun, he's not shooting at you. That soldier is, what is the right? So the morale is answering that the prohibition to murder is a prohibition that exists between an individual and an individual. But there's a concept called war. And the war exists between two factions, between two units, between two nations, between two people. And there's a law that legislates, law that regulates wartime, which is different than the law that legislates interpersonal relationships between one and one. There's a concept called war. And that's what he's writing. This is not Shimon and Levi with a personal vendetta against Shechem, and yet they took out the casualties of the whole city. This is B'nai Yisrael against the nation of Shechem. This is a war. Uma against Uma. Nation against nation. Because 
mutaram likach nikmasam mehem. Because the act of aggression was not isolated, but was representative of a people, it is an act of war. And an act of war deserves a response. Kevin Shayubosa Uma Shasarolahem, Mutaran Lavo Alayam Lamilchamo, Vechain Haim Kol Hamilchamos. This is the law of war. Rav Shechter Shlita, in his Sefer Be'ikveh Son, source number three, references this Maharal in talking about how the IDF, how the Israel Defense Forces operates today. By what right do the IDF have to go into a village to do a search? in a town. We're not in war. There's not currently a conflict, a war. What right do they have to go in to kill, to eliminate, to take down? So writes our shelter. Says Rav Shechter, you know, I once took a group of teenagers on a mission to Israel. The tour guide asked them on the bus before we pulled out of the airport. Does anyone know when the War of Independence began? And the students raised their hands and they answered, you know, right after the Declaration of Independence, 1948, right then, May, that's when the War of Independence began. And then he asked them, they were all so proud they knew the answer. Then he turned to them and he asked, and does anyone know when the War of Independence ended? On what date did the War of Independence end? And he said to them, it's not over yet. It hasn't ended yet. And Rav Shechter is explaining that as a halachic position. The war of independence, the milchama, the war, the battle between two nations, the act of aggression from the other side, continues. And because their aggression continues with the same goal as war, to conquer us, we can respond using the guidelines of war, not the guidelines that dictate civilians in a situation of peace. When you can't distinguish between the terrorists and those who harbor, there are times the IDF is justified to simply shoot. Aye, what about the prohibition of murder? That's talking about an individual to an individual. We're talking about a time of war. And he skipped toward the end, he writes, So come of war, begur, ariel, maharal, the parashat vayishlach. V'chei nira lilomar, dahova matzav keis bar, atzum matzav shal machama, ain liz chashay b'sakanus nafasha shal yechidim, War has different rules than peacetime. And that's what the Maharal is saying. It wasn't Shimon and Levi acting independently against Shem. It was the nation of Israel responding to the declaration of war by the people of Shem. Rav Hirsch also bothered by this question. Rabbi Maskwitz, I'm finishing two more minutes. Rav Hirsch in source number four is also bothered by this and he says... Now the blameworthy part begins, which we need is no wise excuse. Had they killed Shechem and Chamor, there would be scarcely anything to say. But they didn't spare the unarmed men who were at the mercy. They went further and looted and made the inhabitants pay for the crime. For that there was no justification. And Yaakov reproached them. You've clouded me, our reputation, our name, our honor. In a peculiar manner, the story follows immediately on the preceding one. There was a transitory Kol Yaakov, a humane emotion flaring up in Esau's feelings. And we recognized in that the germ of humanness that we ultimately was to grow to complete development in Esau too. And here we see all at once the sword of Esau transitorily in the hands of Yaakov and learn from that fact that brightens Jewish history, namely that though we've ultimately become the nation to whose hands the, the least spilled blood sticks, if we've become the mildest, most soft-hearted of nations, this is not due to any inherent weakness on our part to any form of cowardice. The last days of our existence as state-owned showed our courage and military spirit and so on. It is only the means, the next paragraph, it is only the means which they took and they're going much too far in their use of them that is blameworthy. The motive that moved Shimon and Levi, the purpose they were striving for was holy and was justified. The spirit with which they were filled is an indispensable one for a family that had to wander about amongst the nations of the world. Still on his deathbed, we see the old father expressing his curse on the means and the excessive passion. 
but it's blessing and recognition of the motive and the spirit which lay behind them. So Rav Hirsch is not as complimentary as the Maharal. Rav Hirsch is not as accepting as Rav Shechter. Says Rav Hirsch, were they justified to avenge their sister? Yes. The spirit, what drove them, was noble. They should have taken it out only on Shechem, maybe on Chamor. They went too far. They lost their way, their moral compass. Collective punishment is not something we as the Jewish people believe in. And lastly, Rosh Hashanah Yisraeli, the Rosh Hashiva of Merkaz Arav, the head of Eretz Chemda, a former member of the Beis Dan Agadol, Rosh Hashanah Yisraeli, 1909 to 1995, in the Shir Amar Ayamini, a tshuva, writes about this. Also, he has a whole tshuva on this question of collective punishment. He says, if the whole people will close their eyes to this collective punishment and murder, we have a problem. In practice, there's insufficient basis to permit action against an entire community that has failed to execute its duty and remove murderers from its midst, so long as it's reasonable to excuse them with the claim of fear, pressure, and the like. In other words, he says, you can't level a whole town. You can't say we're going to destroy Gaza or every time they murder one of our people we're going to level a whole city of theirs. He paskins, it's understandable, it's reasonable that the civilians on their side who are harboring terrorists do so out of fear for their own lives. Do so because they're coerced. Do so because there's pressure. Do so because this is how they were raised and they don't know any better. And to therefore just sweepingly say we can destroy them all, collective punishment. Shimon Levi, he says it's unjustified. So, there's a lot more to talk about, we're out of time, but you see from our Parsha that this moral question of collective punishment, a question that began with the birth of our people with Shimon and Levi, it's a question that tragically continues to haunt us, with the modern state of Israel. It's a difficult question, but it finds its roots in our Parsha. Tonight, 7.30, tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, Thursday night, 8 o'clock. Have a wonderful week.